Got it. Fabulous. Uh, good afternoon, I guess. Uh, I am thrilled to have the lovely Greg with me today. Hi, Greg, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Greg Moss. I am in my study at home. My hands are very dry because I've been helping the painters most of today, but I have at least scraped all the sky blue paint from under my fingernails. That's the lengths I go to to be ready for Donna. <laughs> I can't say that I've done the same with bits of steak, <laughs> bacon, sausage roll, but there we are. <laughs> um, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? I felt like it. And uh, when I first worked professionally in the creative industries in theatre, in the French theatre in London, um, it was what I wanted to do. And I wasn't successful at it. I was reasonably successful acting, not in a big way, but... You know, I was reasonably convincing in, in role, in performances. And then what happened, there was this sort of sudden opportunity because a show that should have been on in a theatre, a small pub theatre that I was helping to run, was cancelled. I can't even remember what happened. Like, you know, somebody got ill or they fell out and they didn't want to do it anymore, whatever it was. And I said, well, I'll do this thing I've been thinking about, which was essentially a dramatic monologue um, which was, I had, I had this brilliant collection of um, Russian poetry in translation. I was at Goldsmiths College, which is quite, um, quite an arty college of the University of London. And, um, and I bought it in the bookshop because, uh, because I was interested in, you know, different voices from across the world. And it gave me this idea for a dissident poet who keeps getting questioned by the interrogators that he can't see through the one-way mirror. And, um, and he doesn't know what it was that they want him to admit to. But he doesn't want to admit to anything because he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. But he'd also rather not be in prison, thank you very much. And that was the idea for this dramatic monologue. And so I wrote, I sort of part wrote it, Donna. I didn't completely write it. I part wrote it in the sense that I had probably about two, two and a half thousand words. But when I actually did it, it ended up at about eight or nine thousand words because I'd embroider it around this structure. And that was the first really successful thing I ever part wrote. So I guess the, the short answer to your question is yes, but it, it was quite a long time before I did anything that was really very worthwhile, I think. Um, then I did a couple more drama things like that. Then I moved to Paris and I was very busy working as a translator and interpreter and so on, you know, uh, uh, living only on my own resources and all of that. But I did set up uh, with somebody I met, I set up an evening class in essentially acting and performance. And for that, I started writing scenes for the students, things that I thought would work with um, their personalities. So, and that, that was quite successful. So that, that was the next step. But then of course, my wife, Kate and I, we had children and that caused a great big gap in that sort of creative activity because you're super busy. Mm -hmm. Then we took on the caring for her parents and my mum. She, uh, my mum is still with us. She's 92 years old and uh, that occupies your time. Um, so it, it was only then when my ch our children left home, so that was about eight years ago, eight, nine years ago, that I uh, started writing again for theatre. 
And then, as I think you know, because I think I mentioned this when we were over at Shoreham together at that one-day festival, it was the lockdown that meant that I couldn't write and produce theatre. And so I thought, well, the long-awaited novel, the time has come. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When you uh, decided to sit down and write that, did you already have an idea? Is it something that had been bubbling away? for a while and you're like I've really got to write this down now. So the lockdown was March wasn't it 2020 and I I actually had some stuff to finish. Um, I my partner Lou Doy and I we we work in augmented reality and sometimes in virtual reality and that was something of course that continued because all of that work happens online from computer to computer so I had a lot of that going on. Lou and I were also successful in getting a grant from the Culture Recovery Fund from the from Arts Council England which we spent on all of our collaborators. Uh, we took almost nothing out, out of that. We spent Uh, So that basically means musicians and actors and so on doing work that would have been live online. And it didn't achieve great audiences, but it it kept everybody a little bit busy. It gave them, it kept them all connected to one another. So there was all of that. And that that sort of took me through into the, um, the late summer, I suppose, sort of, yeah, August, September. So that was when I started thinking about it. And then the spur for getting on with it was, of course, National November Writing Month, NaNoWriMo. And so 1st of November, I sat down and I, and I had to be fair, written a bit here and a bit there. But that was when I first sat down and I started writing coherent, dramatic scenes from the novel. And by the end of November, I had about 65,000 words. So I carried on through December into the new year until I could write the end. And then, of course, when I wrote the end, I went back to the beginning and I wrote it, you know, I rewrote it from the beginning. So it was probably from November through to about the end of February, the first draft. That's not bad. I'd done NaNoWriMo last year and I only finished my first draft at the end of October, I think. Good for you. Just in time. Yeah. I mean, I was actually hoping to do it this year and I did start. I was I was going quite well, you know, first five or six days. But then, of course, all of this publication stuff, because the, the Coming Darkness published on the 10th of November sort of took over a good two-thirds of my life. And then I received by email the structural editorial notes for my next book, which, of course, started saying, do us, do us. We're much more important than this new thing you're writing. <laughs> So I, get, I, I had to I had to announce to an uncaring world that I'd given up for this November and I'll be back. <laughs> you know, you know, some people do it in March as well. Oh, really? Or, or, or they do it in March as a preference because November doesn't suit them. So um, that's what I'm thinking of now. I'm setting it up for March instead. Yeah, I had, you know, a nice idea to um, maybe do it. Uh, but yeah, it's now the 18th and I've written nothing. So nothing yeah. <laughs> yeah nothing is definitely falling behind the, the worm <laughs> that climbs up the graph that's not good no yeah, there's a gap in... there between your worm and the, the standard worm <laughs> yeah so what do I need to write eighteen thousand words well uh, no more than or that more than that yeah, yeah oh my it's, it's 1666 yeah. words a day oh, for 30 days 36 
odd, isn't it, by for the 18th? It's more than I care to imagine. Yeah, we'll not worry about that, and that's fine. No. <laughs> um, oh, I just forgot what I was going to ask you then. Oh, yeah, it makes me laugh um, with new authors. Um, they've How much they don't realise a new release and a new book, how much time that takes. Every time I speak to a debut, they're like, oh, my God, release day was so crazy. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is a lot goes on. You're absolutely right. Then again, you know, when when I'm doing um, theatre, you know, when I'm rehearsing a show, you, you disappear for weeks at a time and you've literally got no room for anything else. I was talking to a friend of mine the other morning who um, who stayed the night because he came down to see the show at Chichester Festival Theatre. And uh, we were just I gave him a poached egg the following morning and we were talking about this and that. And he was saying that when he does a television shoot, it'll be 12 or 14 weeks. And throughout that, he can do more or less nothing else in his life at all because it's so all consuming. And the whole period, he never he doesn't get more than six hours sleep a night. And then the moment it's done, he's got a couple of days of um, sort of traumatic separation anxiety because what's he supposed to do with his life? <laughs> And then he has two weeks of crash. <laughs> I said to him, that does not sound like a healthy cycle. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. But they must love it. Must love he does. It. <laughs> yeah, he does love doing it. Yeah. And he's very good. Um, he's very good with script development as well. So that's good. So about your book, which is kind of what we're here to talk about. No. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I suppose we should mention it. Why not? You got it, Hansi? Notice you look. Uh, it's, it be it's behind me. Hang on a second. <coughs> yeah, I've got the paperback advanced reading copy and the gradient edges of That's, the, the yeah. true hardback. <laughs> How about that? That's what I've got. Nice. It is nice. It's mm. very pretty. Mm. I don't yes. know, so I've seen a gradient uh, spread before, so... I know, I think the publisher got very very excited about it. I mean, it it, it must be of marginal interest, right? It's got to be a good book to start with, to be worth the gradient spreads, surely. Not everybody gets them, right? It's like a badge of honour. Yeah. Come on. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Really a badge of honour, yeah. I think back at the print plant, they must be saying to themselves, this book is de deserving. We're going to give it the spreadsheets. And not just that, they'll be gradient too. That's that's what I imagine happened. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure no one's going to dispute you on Why that would notion. they? Come on. No, absolutely. <laughs> so what's it about? Let's it's go a, there. <laughs> it, it's about an agent of the French security services who in 2037 in a period of time when everything that we're worried about today has got more urgent, more insistent, more desperate, he discovers that the orders that he's being given mean that he can't be absolutely sure that he's a goodie, not a baddie. He can't be certain that the action of the state that he works for is for the benefit of the population. And he wonders whether it wouldn't be better if he checked out, if he resigned. 
So where that leads him to is his, this is quite, I think it's an interesting narrative thing because he's an important person as a, an agent of international the security services. His decision to resign gets bounced upstairs until it reaches the sort of chief civil servant who at the interior ministry who says, no, you can't do that. You, you're too important. You're really good at what you do. And this is a period of incredible uncertainty and danger. And we need you to stay in post. And he says, well, I don't want to. And it's surely it's my decision. And she says, are you aware that your mother has been out and about and she has been uh, and she's ill and she hasn't quarantined herself and she's a carrier of a serious virus? Anyway, he basically gets blackmailed into staying in his job. Now, because of that and because he um, because of these worries he's got about the orders he's being given, he begins to investigate more widely. He begins looking into things that he hasn't, um, he hasn't been ordered to look into. And what that means, of course, is he begins to discover the conspiracy that has been hidden, the coming darkness conspiracy. So, so that is, that's, that's how Alex begins to find out what's going on. Now, it just so happens that the woman he loves, Marianne Jordan, who is who also she she works for the internal security services that's quite an important thing in the book this division between the sort of freelancers in external security who might travel the world and 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 do stuff in foreign nations what they're not been invited to do so and all the rest of it whereas internal security is like more of a defensive organization isn't it it's protecting france from outside threats anyway that's where mariam works and it just so happens that she is very well thought of and she works for the boss of internal security and that means that in parallel to alex she has access to secret information which when eventually they come together and they share it helps them to um helps them to solve the mystery awesome i have started reading it but i got distracted by brutal books um, unfortunately, you got distracted by what blog tour books? Oh, yeah, you know, when someone's shouting at me with a date, then I have to kind of do that. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but I was very glad yeah. to put you in touch with Midas PR about the coming darkness because Midas are brilliant in books, comms, and PR, so um, I think uh, I think they're good, they're good people to be working with. Yeah, I mean, I was honoured as well. Um, and I did, I started reading it, I think pretty much as soon as I got it. And a good sign for me that it's going to be a good book is that I'm gripped straight away, which I was. I started, I think I've read, I don't know, maybe 10 chapters and I'm like, wow, <laughs> already. So That's fantastic, Donna. I'm really pleased to hear that. <laughs> yeah, so now my blog tour books are finished and I'll go back to it. Fantastic. And then, yes, you shall have my review. Maybe in a, it's quite long, I think. So maybe in two days instead of it's one ninety day. It's 98,000 words. So there are yeah. longer. It's, uh, I reckon it, for a thriller, I reckon it's almost average. Yeah, I mean, long books don't bother me. It takes me, shockingly, to some people a day to read a book generally. Yeah. I could read one and then start on another. It was no actually, work. it was very funny when I was... Um, <laughs> When I went to um, BBC Front Row on Monday, I was talking to Samira Ahmed, who was um, 
presenting the show and she said that she was reading it quite late and she was really enjoying it but she had to go to sleep but the next morning she didn't have any meetings so she stayed in bed until one o'clock finishing it <laughs> That's, that is a strange and decadent luxury isn't it staying in bed in the morning to finish your book that is yeah um because obviously your wife is Kate Moss um not the model I'm sure sadly for you although your wife is very beautiful um but nah, her books that's, are very the right, long. that's the right because, answer it is true and her books are longer than mine that is absolutely yeah. right um before I was involved in this crazy world of blogging and everything I read Labyrinth um and absolutely loved it um and I wish now that I could shout about it as well I mean I suppose I could but I absolutely loved it so yeah I fell in love with your wife back then whenever you know that what? was there's no reason why you shouldn't post a review of an old book Kate does that herself she does a YouTube <laughs> thing called Moss on a Monday which is just her <laughs> talking to camera for about 20 minutes about four books that she really loves and she does she she does many more old books than she does new books in fact because, um, and of course, it, it's really easy to be always talking about the book that's out right now or the book that's out in six months or in 12 months or whatever. But um, that's quite frustrating for listeners and watchers, isn't it? Because if they can't get hold of it, that's just annoying. Yeah, especially when they're expensive, which, you know, obviously there's, there's some of them are now. But yeah. Yeah, that's right. Whereas Orion, the publisher, have recently re reissued Labyrinth and Sepulchre and Citadel in um you know this paperback format in with new new jackets and everything and in fact kate even updated the stories in sepulchre and citadel um because i think of you know because they've got the historical component there's things that she wanted to revise and you know polish and so on anyway uh, i will pass it on to her that you loved it anyway yeah um I think I sort of, well, I tried to quickly tell her at uh, Shoreham, but um, it was just as the new panel was starting. So we sort of had to whisper. So, but yeah, I wish I'd bought my copy because it's sitting on my bookshelf um, for her to sign, but another time. Sure. <laughs> or or if you send me your address off camera, I will uh, get her to sign something that you can use, put in it as a bookmark, if you like. Mm, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. That would be amazing because, uh, yeah, like I said, I absolutely loved it at the time and it's still sitting on my bookshelf and I only keep books that I loved, which there's quite a few, to be fair. Yeah, of <laughs> course. Yeah. Um, so, your book. <laughs> yes. Um, which character in it gave you most trouble writing? Actually, none of the principal characters gave me any trouble. They all were... Um, I think it's because their roles were really clearly defined um, as major protagonists. So they're either, you know, um, Alex and Mariam, or they're, they're the sort of second division characters, or they're important third division characters. But in the third division, there are two pairs of characters that I wrote in the first draft that was a lot longer than what we've actually published that I amalgamated. So, for example, there's this um, 
there's this research trip that it sounds it sounds dull in a way but it's actually i think really exciting there's this trip that alex goes on to an island in the eastern mediterranean to research the management of um the undersea data cables and power cables that link the continents with electricity and um and uh, information and um when I first wrote it, I had these two separate characters, and one was sort of the control room manager, and the other one uh, on the on the energy side, and the other one was the control room manager on the data side. You know, all the computers and the telephone lines talking to one another between Africa and Asia and Europe with these huge undersea cables. And of course, when I came to edit it, I realised that there was really no need for to have two different people to make the the reader get used to and get to know when I could have one person in charge of all of that. Uh, and, uh, and so that was a real refinement. And a really similar thing happened elsewhere in the book where I had two separate people and I was able to amalgamate them into a single person. Um, which of your characters would you take out for a meal and which of them would you like to go on a boozy night out with? Well, I'm afraid I'm not very boozy. So um, if if they were boozy, I would get quite bored. So I think maybe maybe I should go out. Um, maybe I should have dinner with Alex so I could know him, my hero, so I could know him, uh, you know, better, uh, more intimately, you know, to write him better in the sequel, The Coming Storm. But maybe if I had to go somewhere where everybody was drinking, I would go with his... Um, with his girlfriend, Mariam, because she ha is of Muslim heritage and she doesn't drink. So I'd have somebody to talk to who wasn't slammed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, how did you choose your character names? Yeah, it's interesting that always, isn't it? They have to fit, but you don't necessarily know why they fit. So, um, Mariam, I knew that she would be, um, that her heritage would be a Pyrenean uh, family, albeit a Pyrenean family only in the last three generations because um, her background is North African Arab uh, background. Uh, the Alex's best friend, Amori, I gave him a, the surname Barra, which is quite common for people of his heritage, which is Algerian although he's very distant from that heritage. Uh, Alexandre Lamarck, I, um, I gave him that name. So his second name, Lamarck, uh, is, it's a really solid French name. You know, it, uh, it, in, um, in French, Lamarck is the brand, you know, it's like the badge of distinction, yeah? Uh, so, in, in fact, in the car business, people talk about, in English, they talk about the mark of a car and they spell it M-A-R-Q-U-E like in French. And that's what they mean, the brand, the badge. So, so that was his surname. And then uh, the first time I started writing it, you know, the first few paragraphs, I actually called him Sasha because Sasha is the diminutive, the Russian diminutive for Alexander so, or the Russian equivalent of Alexander. And um, then as I was writing it, I started thinking to myself, Greg, you, you don't speak Russian. You never studied Russian history. You're not really. And, and then, of course, Donna, when I started 
sort of trying to mesh that together with the fact that it's set in 2037, I started thinking to myself, I don't want to be writing Russia in 2037, which I'm afraid is going to be a fragmenting country of mafia bosses and corrupt autocratic governments. That is not what I'm trying to write here. And so I took away that sort of Russian thing from Alex and made him purely French, but he stayed Alexandre. I'll say you put a lot of thought. <laughs> well, yeah, I see. it sounds like a lot of thought, but these things evolve in the back of your mind. It's not like you're drawing up spreadsheets with pros and cons. It's just, you know, all of that that I've just said out loud, all of those things, they just sort of bubble through. And then because what you've decided seems to fit, you never question it. Yeah. I, d I did actually change Mariam's boss, uh, Professor Fayard. I did actually change his name because um, I can't remember who it was now, but the name that I gave him was too close to somebody else's name. And it'd be easy to confuse them, the two characters in the reading of the book. So I, I made his name more distinctive. Yeah, um, it's hard, isn't it, anyway? Um, you know, and obviously ages. I mean, you're writing, it's slightly in the future, so maybe you're a bit freer to, to choose names, but yeah, <laughs> they have to be age-appropriate and... Yeah, they just have to fit and sound right, and yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, I mean, the um, uh, Professor Fayard's sort of right-hand man, um, the administrator or the sort of the chief um, managerial person at Internal Security, his name is Sabi, S-A-B-I-E, and um, he, um, his parents named him for a saint, Eusegnius, E-U-S-E-G-N-I-U-S. I'd never come across that before, but I knew what sort of person he was and what sort of persons his parents must be. And I look, and, the, and um, so here's quite an interesting thing. You know, all the saints have saints' days, obviously. So if you think to yourself, okay, he was born at the beginning of February uh, in 1990. That makes him 47. And if it was the beginning of February, who, what are the saints' names for the 1st and the 2nd and the 3rd of February? And maybe one of those will fit. And, and I think that's what I did with Sabi. I decided when, he's, when he must have been born to be the right age that he is in 1937. And then I looked and I saw what the saint's name was for the day of his birth. And that's how I named him. Mm, wow, that's really cool. I never thought of doing that, but that's, yeah. It's a nice one, isn't it? Yeah. In um, France, it, it, it used to be in France um, that the only names you could legally give a child were names from the repertoire of saints. And this is, you know, the Catholic Church. So there's quite, quite a broad range in the sense that there's a lot of Greek and Roman and North African names, I guess. Uh, but during the first Iraq war, um, some militant parents tried to christen their child Saddam. And they were taken to court <laughs> and told that they couldn't. But I think that law has now changed. I think in France, there is more freedom in the naming of your child than there used to be. Yeah, I saw once there's one country where you have to uh, register or check that your child's name is um, appropriate before it's born. I can't remember where it was now. I saw it, but I was like, wow, okay, that's... <laughs> that sounds quite weird, doesn't it? Yeah. When you say it out loud. Yeah. 
Um, do you hide any um, jokes or Easter eggs in your books? Only in the sense that there are things that um, that seem insignificant that will be significant later. I've got I've got a kind of Puritan attitude that anything that you make the reader pay attention to, they should be rewarded for. Now, um, so within the book, but there are things which I know will be important. Things in the coming darkness that I know will be important in the coming storm. And if anybody reads both of them, there's like an extra reward for that. But of course, in the second book, it has to make sense in its own right, doesn't it? It can't only make sense because of what's in the first book. So um, I'd say on balance, no, but, but um, because, yeah, because it, it won't be so hidden that it's not, um, uh, that you don't get your reward in the reading. Okay, so basically pay attention to what you read in for the next book. <laughs> I think it's important to pay attention. I think so, yes. <laughs> I mean, obviously I do that anyway, but you know. Well done. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, yeah, because you never know. And, you know, I mean, because I beta read and stuff as well, then I kind of read like that anyway, because I'm always looking for mistakes. I can't help it. Um, yeah, that's right. It, it's actually, it can become quite oppressive, can't it? When you're always thinking sort of editorially and, and you'd like it just to flow. I, I always feel that when I go to the theatre, because I do so much work in story development and script development for theatre. I always think on the way in, I hope this play doesn't make me think about how it's been written. Yeah. If it could just, if it could just float past, I'll be happy. Yeah. And that's the standard now that, <laughs> that a book has to reach and um, for your play is that it has to make you forget about everything else and just enjoy it for what it is. That's exactly you know? right. Yeah. But it does make, I do get a little like yes when I spot something and I send it to someone and I'm like, Ooh, I didn't realize that. It's like, yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. <laughs> I read a book recently and I'm like, did you know that you changed the car from a Fiat to a Peugeot then back to a Fiat? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and even my friend who's really, really strict and spot is everything. I said that to her. She's like, Oh, I didn't spot that. I was like, yes. Well done. Yeah. Little things. Very, I should get out more, I think, is, is the answer to that. <laughs> uh, but what have you found hardest or more difficult than you're expecting going to completely to fiction uh, or like a long form fiction rather than plays and poems and things? It's just It's just the length of time it takes. And because of the lockdowns, that transition was actually really easy because I didn't have the same amount of competing uh, objectives or demands on my time and um, and if I was um, if, if I I suppose if somebody said to me um, you have to write a book now and it has to be ready by the end of January I'd say well I'm doing all this publicity still and I've also got the copy edit for this other thing that, I, uh, sorry, the structural edit and then the line edit for this other thing that I'm doing. I, I might be able to do it, but I wouldn't enjoy it. Do you know what I mean, Donna? Yeah. If you've got the time to do it properly to your satisfaction, then even if it's really demanding, you can enjoy it. But if you're being pushed 
so that you know that you're not doing your best because of limitations of time, then no, that's that's not a lot of fun. And at the end of the day, you're sending it out with your name on. So, you know, if you're always going to look at it and think, mm, then that's not right either, is it? No, it's not. Yeah. Um, you've been to a few uh, events this year. Are you looking to go to more events next year, book events? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd be uh, um, as so not so much over December, January, February, because um, I've, I've got a lot of writing that I want to do. But as soon as we get into sort of towards the spring and then through into summer, yeah, as many as I can, I think um, the the um, being with people who like books is is the best, isn't it? Because people who like books are generally not, I mean, generally speaking, they're nice people. So, and you've got something in common with them, right? So it's, it's a great way of doing that. And even when you're at a festival, you don't actually, you don't have to be in conversation every minute of every day. Um, you know, you can go to an event and you can sit on your own, and just listen and sort of check out of all the social part if, if, you, if that becomes tiring, because it can do. Um, and you can go back to your room and you can read the books you've just bought as well. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think so. And um, Kate and I have to manage it around looking after uh, my mum, obviously. But that's part of the reason why uh, my brother also lives with us, because we can coordinate with him. And so, you know, we're not always out of the house at the same time. Yeah, I um, I I thought um, I'd have a little look to see how many bars I've travelled this year for book festivals, um, and it's quite a lot. But I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to do a competition in my Facebook group for people. That's a good get, idea. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, for for a prize of something, and then um, I might do a second like a runner up of how many authors I've met, but I haven't worked that out yet. But it's quite a few this year. So. Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah. You know, um, back in July when it was Harrogate and then the Latitude Festival in Suffolk, um, just before that happened, my car um, decided that the bonnet wasn't shut. The bonnet was shut. But the car was certain the bonnet was not shut. And so it sounded an alarm. And I took it to the garage and I said, this alarm won't stop. And they said, oh, okay, well, we'll... Uh, tell you what we'll we'll solder in a wire so we bypass the alarm sensor and then of course the dashboard said that somebody had bypassed the alarm sensor and the alarms so kate and i had to drive all the way from sussex to harrogate with the alarm beeping once a second for the entire journey then from harrogate to latitude in suffolk almost in southwold and then from Southwold back home again, we did more than like 550 miles with the bonnet alarm beeping once a second for 550 miles. Ouch, oh, that, my God. That would have driven then, me insane. And, and, and then I took it back to the garage and I said, Ken, you're going to have to get like replace, like we said, you'll have to replace the sensors. And they said, yeah, we've got them in. We'll do it now. And it took them about 40 minutes. And the sensors were like 12 quid each. 
and it was it was just bad timing you know i was in the garage and i was saying to them i've got i've got to drive to harrogate I'm, i've got an event tonight it's going to take me six hours i've got to go and they said well you have to drive it with the alarm on <laughs> oh my i couldn't have that would have driven me it, it annoys the people at work that i don't put the timers on the ovens but they beep when they go off and i can't stand beeping it drives me insane it. yeah i hate the beeping down with the beeping that. i say yeah because I used to work in a petrol station, so when someone picks up a pump, it beeps. Yeah. So I used to let it have one, and then I'd press it, and that, you know, yeah, can't stand it. <laughs> no. The only good bit, on the way up to Harrogate, it was raining, which was a bit of a bummer. When eventually we were coming home from Latitude, it was quite a nice day, so we had the roof down, and then you didn't notice it much. Yes. I got, I I got the train. Last year I drove to Harrogate. This year I got the train. Getting my suitcase home, my goodness. Full <laughs> of had, books. I think I had 35 to 40 books to bring Oh, my home. God. And I'm on my own trying to get this massive suitcase on yeah. and off trains. And because I have to go into London to then come back out of London to get home. Right. Yeah. Are you in St Albans? Is that right? I'm working in St Albans. I live in Dunstable. Right. Yes, yeah, so I'm a little bit further, whichever way it is, up, I think. Yeah. yeah, I'm not too bad with my geography, but yeah, I know I'm north of London, so I think I go down to St Albans and back up to Dunstable. Fair enough. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's, uh, four. I think four hours to Harrogate and six hours to Scotland. Whew, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'll be. I'll look out for it when you do the quiz on how many miles you've travelled and how many authors you've met. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to. I might do that this evening. Actually, try and figure out. I've got selfies with most of them, so yeah, I'm gonna try and I'm gonna put it on a picture. I think just to see. <laughs> Great <Good> idea. <clears throat> I've got a selfie with you, haven't I? I'm sure we had a picture. Did we do one at Shoreham? Maybe I think so. I think so. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> that was a crazy day as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't remember. <clears throat> and even the event I'd done in Brighton was that was a hundred miles that I organised. I'm like, I live 100 miles away. Why am I doing it in Brighton? Yeah, sure. Is there, are there, is there a literary festival in St Albans, though? That sounds like that sounds like a really good venue for a, a lit yeah. fest, no? I am going to look into that. There's a Waterstones in St Albans as well, so I was thinking of asking them because it's literally down the road from Greg's. Um, yeah, so I could just go plan. in there and ask them. Yeah. yeah. But um, I've been asking about more venues for doing another one in sort of the Brighton area because so many authors wanted to do it. (laughs) Like 34, I think. Well, yeah, that's an all-day festival, isn't it? So, but, you know, you'll have to work it out. Anyway, what else have you got on your list of punishing questions? Um, So my next question that I quite like asking is if you were able to spend a day with any author dead or alive, who would you like to spend a day with? I think I think it would be Kate Moss. Have you met her? She's really (laughs) great. She writes these incredible books. She is a wonderful, intelligent um, and and charming person. (laughs) And I think and if you'd like me to specify where I think we should have that day in Paris, that would be my preference. So Kate Moss in Paris, if I can. If you can organise that, I'll be very grateful. <laughs> I could barely afford to get to St Albans. All right, <laughs> no okay. I'll organise it for myself. I don't care. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Oh, you're such a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you're editing your books, what's your most overused word or phrase? 
what what phrases that I see and then I want to cut. Yeah, or or your editor shouts at you for using a certain word about five hundred times. Oh, I see. Everyone now that has one. That has not yet happened. Um, but it might be because the time by the time I've shown it to an editor, it's been through a few drafts. So first draft I read, then I rewrite it. Second draft Kate reads, then I rewrite it. Third draft I'll give to my agent. So I get more notes, then I rewrite it again. So the editor only sees the fourth draft, by which point any sort of egregious repetitions, they should have been cut, really, I suppose. So, no, that's not happened to me yet. It might do. Yeah. Usually it's just, just as a common one. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, that is one. I tell you one that I'm often, uh, I often mention when I'm helping people with their work. It is sentences that begin with as... And the things aren't really simultaneous. You know, things like, as she was thinking about her brother, she put the kettle on. And and it, it's like, a, it's sort of pretending that there's a connection. It's pre, and it, it always feels bogus to me, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, I guess something that I'll, that, um, that I've often come across from early drafts is I might start writing from the point of view of the narrator and then it shifts into the point of view of the character who's present. But normally I would spot all of that and I'd make it all from the point of view of the character who's present. Um, I wouldn't have that uncomfortable sort of slippery bit where you don't know quite which way to think of it. No, I don't. I can't think of anything particularly annoying that anyone's pointed out to me yet okay i'll ask you again in a year exactly. <laughs> and you'll know it just like that could happen <laughs> most authors i know are like yeah just <laughs> I'm <not> okay like... <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> look out no for that hesitation. now yeah <laughs> um if you're able to travel to any period of time either forwards or backwards where would you go yeah that's a good question i'm very drawn to the 18th century, the Age of Enlightenment. And I, th I think um, the, the late 18th century, the birth of the American and French revolutions, the, great, the two first great modern republics, um, free thinking, scientific inquiry, all of that stuff. But I would like at the same time to travel, if I may, with a full suitcase of antibiotics for all of the terrible diseases that otherwise I would quickly succumb to. Yeah, that's fair enough. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, obviously, you know, going back would be fascinating. But yeah, the smells and the food sometimes and the diseases. Uh, now, I was brought up in the country, <laughs> so I'm not that bothered by smells. You know, the people will say to me, oh, my God, doesn't that smell awful? You know, it's the pigs. And I say, and I sort of think, that still smells very healthy. What's what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, I know. I um, went to stay with an author friend, funnily enough, and she uh, lives near farms. And they were talking about farming and stuff. And I was like, Ugh. And she's like, yeah, you're you're in a farming area. You're just going to kind of have to get used to it. I was like, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, so who was your first celebrity crush? Oh, I, I, I'm not sure I, I have a celebrity crush. I can't, I can't think of any celebrity crushes. Not Is even that... when you're a teenager. Do, 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 <laughs> no, I can't. You know, Kate and I met when we were sixteen. There's no, there's no room in life for a celebrity crush when you've already got the perfect person, right? That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Knowing as we do, right, that <laughs> celebrities are, um, they're not real, right? They're, they're like uh, a cultivated presence in the media. They're not real people. You shouldn't take that seriously, that stuff. Yeah, so, no, I'm still... afraid I, I don't have one for you, no. Some of them are pretty, though. You know, I, I admire the, the, I don't care about the personality particularly, but some of them are pretty to look at. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Yeah. You know, like some authors are pretty, you know, and some other people are pretty to look at. So, so it is true. Hmm? Yeah. If, if somebody comes into my mind, I promise I'll tell you. I don't forget, by the way. So if you don't, tell okay. me, I will keep asking. <laughs> yeah, you you could make it a regular feature of Donna's interviews. Yeah. Well, by Neil the way, Greg still not got an answer. Yeah. <laughs> Neil Lancaster still hasn't told me, so in my head. And then Duncan Brookwell's never told me his most embarrassing moment, so that's still in my head. Like I don't forget. Okay. <laughs> I will keep okay. asking. <laughs> okay, go for it. Yeah. Um, okay, so if you're able to swap places with any person for a day who would you choose that's a really weird question that one swapping faces with somebody so um i guess what i would what would i want to do i wonder if i could do so in the 18th century you know whilst i've gone back in time that would be quite interesting I'd love to talk to Samuel Johnson, the great writer, the lexicographer, the first dictionary, all of that, a brilliant conversationalist and wit. And I suppose the best way to be in his company would be to be one of his friends, you know, so I could wear James Boswell's face or John Wilkes's face or Oliver Goldsmith's face, you know, the, play, the 18th century playwright, one of them, that would be good because then I could get close to um, Samuel Johnson and, and hear him speak in real life. Yeah, that sounds cool. I like the sound of that. Good. Um, on death row, what would your final meal be? Starter, main and dessert? Yeah, good. I think French onion soup, I think, is a, always a really great starter. Uh, then clearly a superb South African steak from grass-fed cattle on the in the Karoo, we know, which is like this the savannah north of Cape Town, accompanied by probably a red wine from Constantia, which is again just outside Cape Town, magnificent wine. And then for dessert, I'm not big on dessert, so it would probably be a really superb Conte cheese, or maybe either a Munster or a Conte. Conte is like a hard cheese. When it's young, it's sort of, uh, 
it's not specially strong it's sort of like cheddar but as it gets older uh, um it um it develops a really wonderful complex acidic cheesy flavor so yeah that's what it would be the french onion soup and the superb steak and some at least 12 year old conte cheese nice <laughs> It's you didn't have to think about that very much either. <laughs> no, I just imagined it straight away. <laughs> I love how authors' minds work. It's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your pet hate or your biggest bugbear? <laughs> I think it's probably people who deny the evidence that's in front of their eyes in whatever part of experience people people who deny that the world is more difficult for women than it is for men for example uh the who who claim that you know sexism or racism or anti-semitism is over when those things are patently still a blight um I, people who who will tell you that um the seasons haven't changed but you know i've been gardening for about 50 years now and the seasons happen in different months in the south of england from how they used to i mean just really simple things like you you didn't used to be able to make white wine in the uk and now you can make champagne of all things in the uk which is which competes in competitions with champagne from the champagne region of france you know these are this is this is evidence of things changing and the evidence is in front of your eyes and then of course in politics the people who will tell you that the reason why the economy is managed for the benefit of the rich is because then money trickles down to the benefit of the poor and it doesn't that doesn't happen and everybody can see that it doesn't happen it's just a f it's just falsifying what's in front of people's eyes so that's the thing that drives me bonkers um you're a very busy man but when you do get free time what do you like to do with it well i do like gardening uh because it doesn't stop you from thinking about other things you know most of gardening is routine and also you get to buy yourself presents you know you go to the garden center and you come back with a plant and it's like it's a present for me and then the wonderful thing is mostly in a year's time it's still alive maybe two years maybe five years maybe more it's still alive and the other part that i like in gardening is that um if you choose the right plants then they're on your side they're working with you and when you're not looking they're also doing their best to make it all look nice so that's that i think is my favorite thing i used to play golf quite often uh, but that was when i had uh, when my children were smaller and i had um, you know lots of time spent devoted to them and i wanted something that got me out of the house so that was good i would go and play golf first thing in the morning and uh, you know i'd play 18 holes and be back by 10 o'clock um because it was you know early and i'd zoom round on my own song but uh, i don't really have anything that i do like that now um so obviously you've mentioned your second book um and then do you have a plan for what you're going to do after that 
So we'll have to see how how uh, the coming darkness and then later the coming storm are received. It might be that Moonflower decides to publish the coming storm next November, which would be 12 months on from the coming darkness. Or as a publisher, you know, it's they're within their rights to say to themselves, well, actually, we'd write to publish the paperback next autumn and we'll save the coming storm for what would then be 2024, wouldn't it? You know, that that's obviously I'd have a say and we'd be able to talk about it. But, you know, in the end, it's a, a publishing decision. We'll see. Um, I uh, mentioned to you when we spoke at Fatal Shore and Shoreham that um, I've I've written these cozy crime novels um, that I'm in the process of editing. And although they're not announced yet and the publisher will put out an announcement in January, they will start publishing next July. So I hope that when you and I are both in Harrogate next July, if we both make it, that we'll actually be looking at a finished copy of the first cosy crime novel. That'll be fun. Yeah. Hopefully I'll be able to have a copy of my book as well. <laughs> that would be brilliant. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> There's a lot of work to do first. <laughs> Isn't there always? Yeah. Um. What's been your highlight so far of this crazy journey? Well, it has to be the fact that John Dugdale in the Sunday Times said that The Coming Darkness was one of his five top thrillers of the year. And that was a completely um, mind-blowing thing, which, because you don't get any warning of something like that happening. It just happens. And then there it is, which is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I saw that actually. Yeah, if you got it printed out and like in a frame on the wall. <laughs> no, I haven't done that. I have got behind me in my office here um, a copy of the cover, you know, the jacket in a frame because on my wall are uh, most of the posters for most of the theatre shows that I've written and produced. So it fits among them. I mean, I'm looking forward actually to publishing more novels so that the novels start to displace the theatre posters. The theatre posters will have to go, there's a staircase back there behind me, behind that bookshelf, and I'm going to move the theatre posters down the staircase and put the book posters at the top. Does Kate have any say in this at all? Well, this is my room. This is my study. (laughs) My study. Thank you very much. Does she have her book covers in her study? She does have, not in the same way, because she, uh, although she has very successfully written um, play scripts and had them produced, um, she's never got into that sort of habit. But I like it. I like those physical, um, you know, because you put a lot of thought and creative energy into making a poster. So it, it ends up as a really good memento of the show. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I think it's cool. Um, well, I can't think of anything else to ask you unless you think there's anything I haven't asked you that you want to tell us. I tell you this, here is a thing that I would like to tell you. Okay. The the only there on there is no alternative to finishing. Uh I think I'm pretty certain it was Somerset Morm who was asked one day, why do you finish every single thing you ever start writing? And he said something like, Well, if I didn't how would I finish anything? Do you see what he meant? If you've got the, if you give yourself permission to give up once, you're you're giving yourself permission to give up every time. 
because you can always say to yourself my next idea will be better my next idea is the one not this not this that i've put loads of time and energy and love into i'm not going to do that anymore i'm going to do this new thing which is all perfect and shiny and bright and it will be wonderful but of course three months later it's just like the other one was hard work and demanding of your remorseless attention to bring it to its conclusion so that that's all that, that i'm afraid is the miserable message with which i leave you there is no alternative to finishing okay um well just before we go would you like to firstly show off your book again oh yeah secondly, tell everyone where they can find out more about you if they'd like to and where they can get your book from oops here it is <gasps> here is the coming darkness with its gradient sprayed edges um, I went in and signed um, copies at Goldsboro Books, who will send you a lovely signed copy in the post if you would like one. Otherwise, it's available, I think, more or less everywhere. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. And yes, I will share my review of you as soon as I've finished it. <laughs> thank you, Donna. This has been great. Good. And thank you. <laughs>